0: The science behind weather forecasting and how AI is advancing the tech. Popular bug bounty program HackerOne announces layoffs of 12% of workforce, and the Muck v Zuck fight may actually be happening. I'm Jackson Fordyce, and this is Venture Daily. It's blazing hot across the United States and much of Europe right now. Here in Austin, Texas, where our show is based, it's been over 100 degrees Fahrenheit every single day for the past month. July saw 24 straight, over 100 degree days, our second longest streak ever. All of North America's experiencing the heat, as experts predict this will be one of the hottest summers ever recorded in the Northern Hemisphere. As we sit here inside, avoiding the unrelenting heat until mid-October... We thought we'd bring you a story about the science behind the weather and how the discipline of forecasting extreme temperatures and weather patterns is being advanced by AI tech. Forecasting accuracy has taken leaps over the past few decades, but there are still gaps in the current tech's capabilities. Google and NVIDIA are among companies investing in AI-based forecasting tech to help bridge the gaps. The Met Office, the United Kingdom's National Weather Service, is also developing machine learning and supercomputing technology. The Met Office provides forecasts to other countries as well as sells their data to private aviation, agriculture, and insurance companies. So how do meteorologists use AI and supercomputing? They collect data from numerous sources and use supercomputers to make predictions, hours, days, weeks, and even months ahead, and they can do it accurately as the observations are constantly updated. The smallest changes in Earth's weather systems can lead to big changes in weather patterns. The UK's Met Office tracks and feeds their computers about 500,000 data points every day. For an expert's insight into the science behind forecasting, I spoke with Nick Cavanaugh.
1: My name is Nick Cavanaugh. I have a PhD in the atmospheric sciences. I'm the founder and CEO of Sensible Weather, which is a weather technology company that's helping travelers plan for and mitigate losses due due to weather.
0: Nick, can you help us better understand how supercomputing and machine learning is improving accuracy in weather forecasting?
1: So historically, weather forecasters have used a process called numerical weather prediction, which basically discretizes a big math problem and then sets out a huge computer to solve some equations. Uh, Increasingly, these supercomputers that that compute is is housed on GPUs, and they're using more and more machine learning to do these, these types of analyses, albeit in a very different way. So essentially what supercomputers are doing, are crunch, they're crunching a lot of numbers, they're crunching a lot of data, and, and outputting a, a forecast at fairly high spatial granularity.
0: And how much of a role do you think human forecasters will continue to have as machine learning takes over the most difficult parts of prediction computing?
1: So I think this is a really good question. Uh, in my opinion, um, if you actually look at the numbers of predictability, you know, coming from numerical weather prediction or AI-based machine learning forecast models, they're, they're pretty good in general. And I think what I would argue is we're at the point of diminishing marginal returns in terms of actual data, you know, quantitative forecast quality. That said, there is still a fairly large gap between what a forecast says and a consumer's perception of it. Um, and consumers, a consumers, therefore, a consumer's perception of the quality of that forecast. This is where machine or meteorologists really step in to bridge that gap, to make a translation between what a model output says and what a consumer or, or, or you know, some, somebody who ingests that weather forecast might think.
0: Interesting. With the introduction of AI, do you expect to see the private sector begin competing with the National Weather Services to bring us the best forecasting models?
1: No, um, I don't think it's. Well, at this point, anyway, um, the problem is not reducible to to a scale that that private sector can handle. Uh, moreover, private sector, even large enterprises like IBM, have tried in the past and essentially have proven that they are unable to compete with modeling centers like NOAA and ECMWF. That said, I do think they will they will play a role in improving ultimately the predictions coming out of. Modeling centers. Um, how exactly that plays out is a good question. I think it's going to, ultimately, the weather forecasts that we see every day and ingest are going to be a combination of forecasts coming from modeling centers as well as improvements coming from the private sector.
0: Nick, what kind of opportunity does the new world of weather forecasting provide for VCs wanting to back private companies in the sector?
1: That's a really good question. I mean, I've, I've been in this space uh, as a as an academic working on some basic precursor models to what we're seeing today. Um, what I've seen in terms of, uh, improvements or announcements of improvements over the last three months have basically exceeded everything that I've seen in the last, you know, 12, 15 years. The question is what are they going to be good for? And, And, you know, where is it actually going to have an improvement over what's available today? What, where I see AI, being really helpful in this space or AI-based weather forecasting models being really helpful in this this space is they're incredibly efficient. Um, What that means is they're extremely fast to run. Uh, I I doubt that in terms of comparing forecast quality apples to apples based on a certain run date, you're going to see improvements in an AI-based model alone. That said, because AI-based models are so much more efficient, so much faster to run, you can run them much more often. Uh, You can run run them in in much higher quantity to sample the uncertainty space. So there's going to be a variety of improvements. The question is, where are you going to see them? And I think it's still too early to tell. There's certainly a lot of people piling into this space, and the barrier to entry to start making these predictions and start to make some claims about model improvements has reduced dramatically. So... It's now becoming a competitive space and, you know, where there is competition, generally you see improvements.
0: That was Nick Cavanaugh, founder and CEO of Sensible Weather. Thanks for being on the show, Nick.
1: Absolutely. Thanks a lot.
0: Over the past year, we've seen a significant rise in tech layoffs. According to Crunchbase's latest August 4th report, more than 158,000 workers at U.S.-based tech companies have been laid off so far in 2023 alone. Although tech has suffered from mass layoffs broadly, the cybersecurity industry has largely avoided it. However, that could be changing. HackerOne, one of the most trusted bug bounty programs, just announced it's laying off 12% of its employees. HackerOne's ethical hackers find and report software bugs to companies and government agencies, including the DoD, Amazon, and Google. Is this an indication of incoming layoffs for other cybersecurity companies, or just a one time event, as HackerOne CEO Martin Mikos called it in an email to employees? To help answer that question is Scott Fletcher.
2: My name is Scott Fletcher. I'm the co-founder of Intersection Growth Partners.
0: Intersection Growth Partners is a fintech-focused executive staffing and investment firm. Scott, layoffs in cybersecurity have been rare, at least compared to the larger tech industry. Does this news from HackerOne indicate there may be more layoffs incoming across the cybersecurity industry?
2: For sure. Listen, the reality is that a lot of these companies that are later stage... Um, are having to watch their burn uh, quite closely. Um, As you get earlier stage, uh, the the companies are still receiving funding at a slower pace than they were, you know, let's call it 18 months ago, but nothing in terms of the slowdown that's at the later stage companies like a hacker one. And so, um, listen, if you look at the, If you look at the public company comps, just take a couple big um, fintech names, block down probably 75% from its highs, PayPal down 80% from its highs. Something needs to to happen here uh, with respect to the valuations in the private markets. Either uh, the public markets need to move back up or the private market valuations need to come down before – Funding is going to get unlocked, and therefore the founders feel like they can spend again. So, uh, Or I I suppose the companies need to actually start making profits. One of those things needs to happen uh, for the um, environment to change such that um, uh, these founders and boards feel comfortable spending again.
0: We've seen sweeping layoffs across tech companies over the past year. For clarity, what are the main reasons prompting mass layoffs?
2: Same same exact uh, reasoning. Um, founders and boards have to be concerned about runway. And so uh, when they take a look at um, their balance sheet and they say dwindling cash balances, and they're not sure when they're going to be able to raise or if they raise what the valuation is going to be. They have to take action lest they run out of cash. And so it's going to it, it just sort of uh, as with the previous question, there probably needs to be some sort of market clearing moment here where uh, founders um, align their expectations around the valuation with the VCs, the funders' um, expectations about, around valuation so that the funding spigot turns back on again.
0: So if you work in tech right now or you were just hired by a tech company, are you worried for your job? What's a general sentiment felt by tech employees right now?
2: Well, listen, things are certainly cooled off from... Uh, 18-plus months ago. There's no question about that. Um, I would say that the earlier stage companies probably have more comfort in terms of um, their uh, outlook. As you get later stage, as we talked about, and your valuation is being comped to public market companies that are down 50 to 80% from their highs, that's a, that is a tougher spot to be in. And so I do think that people who are sitting, particularly in those later stage companies are concerned and with reason, not only has the hiring slowed down, but the, the layoffs um, have continued and, um, and we're in a, in, and we're in a, um, a, a bear market here. So um, yes, there is reason for concern.
0: Scott, last question. Do you see any signs of a recovering market for the tech workforce?
2: Um, listen, the public companies are certainly off their lows. So we do see, um, some, some, um, positive news there. AI is, continues to be a frequent topic of conversation and where we're seeing significant investment. So, uh, I guess those are a couple things that we would point to in terms of uh, positive outlooks. But overall, it is uh, a a relatively slow market overall.
0: That was Scott Fletcher, co-founder of Intersection Growth Partners. Scott, thanks for joining the podcast today.
2: A real pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: Since June, tech
3: CEOs Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk have been playing up a potential fight between the two for charity. There's been a lot of back and forth, especially over Twitter and Threads, but no confirmation of if the fight would ever actually happen. Well, over the weekend, Musk updated everyone via X that the fight is confirmed. If you haven't been following the timeline of Musk v. Zuck, here's a quick rundown. On June 20th, Mario Nafal tweets that Meta plans to release a Twitter rival called Threads, Chris Cox... Meta's CPO threw shade at Twitter by claiming that Meta has, quote, been hearing from creators and public figures who are interested in having a platform that is sanely run. Musk tweeted in a response that night, saying, I'm sure Earth can't wait to be exclusively under Zuck's thumb with no other options. At least it will be sane, was worried there for a moment. Not long after, Musk replied to a tweet about the fight, saying, I'm up for a cage match, if he is, lol. The next day, June 21st, Zuck posted a screenshot of Musk's response on Instagram and wrote, send me location in giant letters. As buzz spread about the developing story, UFC CEO Dana White got involved. He told TMZ that he, quote, talked with Mark and Elon last night. Both guys are absolutely dead serious about this, and this would be the biggest fight ever in the history of the world. It would break all pay-per-view records. To prepare for the fight, the men have been training with top-tier MMA and UFC fighters. Musk has trained with mixed martial arts legend George St. Pierre, and Zuckerberg has trained with UFC champs Israel Adesanya and Alexander Volkanovsky. That's the recap. Here's the latest. Over the weekend, Musk provided more info on the upcoming fight, posting a caption which reads, Zuck v. Musk fight will be live-streamed on X. All proceeds will go to charity for veterans. While well, a date has not yet been confirmed, in response to Musk's live stream news, Zuck responded saying, quote, I'm ready today. I suggested August 26 when he first challenged, but he hasn't confirmed. Not holding my breath. Musk responded, exact date is still in flux. I'm getting an MRI on my neck and upper back tomorrow. May require surgery before the fight can happen. We'll know this week. Will this fight actually happen? We know we're hoping for it. We'll keep you updated.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Venture Daily. Today's show is produced by Josiah Simons and Jackson Fordyce. Our theme song was created by Benjamin Cook. If you liked today's episode, please give us an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see
1: y'all tomorrow morning.